Okay, thank you very much. And uh, thanks everybody for reading. And uh, it's uh, nice to be here tonight. I can't hear anything. Joy, are you muted? Am I muted? No, you sound um, great. No, I can hear you fine. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yep. Okay. Yeah, we can hear you. Just wave again if I if not. Anyway, I'm Steve Alcoholic, and it's nice to be here. Um, just being here, it's pretty shocking to me I, that I'm I'm at the base level. There's always a a base level of in, incredible gratitude that I'm alive, and what do I want to do while I'm alive? Um, I would definitely be dead if I did not stop drinking. Um, I would be dead if I didn't go to AA. And uh, so anything that go is going on in my life, I seem to have at least, you know, a percentage of, well, it's okay. Um, and uh, even speaking tonight is a sign of growth for, for me. If you know me, I'm naturally quiet, but um, I grew up painfully shy, and it's uh, painful to be shy. Um, and then there was a lot of fear around that, and it affected my life a lot. I would avoid situations and work and goals that I had that involved speaking, really. And uh, there's a lot of secondary benefits to getting sober. And to my surprise, uh, my shyness has kind of disappeared. I learned how to get words past my teeth in AA, and I was allowed to do that on my own time. I didn't share for seven months in AA, and nobody told me I needed to speak. Uh, Bolden was particularly good about that and that it doesn't call on people. So I uh, gradually started speaking, and that was interesting. Um, for me, my head and my heart and my soul hadn't communicated for decades, and so I didn't have too much to say anyway. And then um, in my second year, I just started talking in a few times, and uh, things kind of actually made sense. I also realized that I wasn't going to be criticized and the concept of crosstalk, no crosstalk was helpful um, in that I wasn't, wouldn't be given a plan after I said something. Um, I really appreciate that there's no wrong way to share. Many of us, like was mentioned, aren't thinking correctly at times when we're in recovery. And so to require logic and making sense uh, isn't a good idea, and I'm glad we don't require that um, I was even allowed to I asked a friend I'd been asked to speak a few times earlier in sobriety and I uh, I it scared me too much and I asked somebody about that an old timer I said that's fine to not do that a lot of people stay sober for decades and never do a, a speaking thing uh, but they do plenty of other service work so I didn't speak until last year, which was my eighth, ninth year of sobriety. And uh, currently I'm in my 10th year. And the way I put it, I've been under the care of AA for 10 years. And it's been wonderful to be under that care, to let AA wash over me and get rid of the defiance. And uh, 
kind of use AA as a way to live. It has probably become a working part of my mind. And I have been returned to sanity, um, which is nice. Before I got sober, I had one morning towards the end, I woke up and uh, was sitting on the side of my bed drinking a vodka, trying to uh, recover from the dry heaves I had just had. And uh, I actually saw my mind leave my head and uh, go towards the corner of the bedroom in the ceiling and I jumped up and I tried to grab it and it was gone and that was probably the worst po- point of my life that I and I said to myself I've, I've lost my mind and I, I truly had and I didn't know one could ever get it back if you lost it but I, I somehow have and uh, it's obviously a nice thing uh, to th- be able to think again um, other than that, I would say I'm a relapser. I've uh, relapsed thousands of times in my life, but I've never relapsed after I came into AAA. Um, I used to relapse every day when I was drinking. Um, I used to relapse. I used to have a beer and say this will be just one. I'd have end up having ten, and so the idea that relapsers are only people that drink after they come into AA. I don't I don't buy it I think all alcoholics are relapsers and I'm I'm glad to be uh, not apart from that Um, I was definitely not in touch with myself before I came into AA but AA somehow was in touch with me Um, you know when we pray for those still suffering AA was praying for me, I never heard them, but AA was praying for me long before I ever came into an, a meeting. Um, I kind of keep notes and get prepared, so I might rustle around a few pages of stuff. Um, I think uh, AA, AA is an opportunity for me to change my destiny, stopping drinking. Um, one way to describe getting sober is I sit in a chair uh, once, once every day, and that's it. Somebody had shared that recently, and that's a good humble way for me to do it. I go to a meeting, I sit in a chair, and I do that every day of my life. Um, and whatever I learn, I learn, and uh, and that is a, a habit of mine to go to meetings. Um, the most important part of AA has been uh, tough love, and uh, I was shocked that it's not the kind of tough love I expected. Um, when I came into AA, I thought it would be like that Sean Penn movie, Bad Boys, like a reform school. And uh, unfortunately, unfor- the toughest love, the strongest love, is one of compassion and it was a real problem for me, or it was a question for me when I first got into AA, like, how do I react to that? Uh, to nobody telling me what to do, to people loving me, to people accepting me, to people not telling me I've been doing things terribly wrong forever. And how do I react to not being punished? I wanted to be punished, sort of like 
come on, do something so I could feel better. And yet there was nothing that was done. And so I kind of knew right away that I would probably have to stop drinking because of that. Not because I was an alcoholic, but because I needed to stop drinking because I was in an environment that was so loving and kind. I, how could I ever leave that environment? Um, and so that's really been why, uh, in a roundabout way, I've stayed sober. I didn't want to leave that environment. I didn't want to leave um, a place where that has inherent dignity and original good. And it's not AA that administers it. It's the people in the rooms that administer it. AA is not magisterial. It doesn't decree things. It's us, everybody here tonight, that is doing that. And uh, Bill Wilson used to quote an Arabian saying, and it goes, uh, I salute you and and thank you for your life. And uh, I didn't know that, but uh, that's what you were doing to me, even though I'd had a horrible run of things. Um, and I do that to pe for people now. I salute you and I thank you uh, for your life. I, I get a drink of water. <clears throat> um, so, uh, overall, I would say uh, also the feeling. So, I ended up staying. And uh, figuring things out and having my own experience in AA. My sponsor, I wanted him to tell me how to do AA. And I s sat down with him and he, he said, he's an old timer with 40 years of sobriety or something. And he said, I'll never tell you what to do. And I go, what, do, well, how do the what, what does that mean? And he said, well, you can ask questions and I will answer them. And so that was an invitation, and uh, the biggest question had already been asked, and that was one that asked me to look inward, and that's what I did. Um, AA is cosmic and comfy, and uh, that's what I love about it. I like the spirituality. I like uh, the safety in the rooms, and uh, I'll read... Uh, I'll read something that reminded me of that, if I could find it. Um, yeah, it's called Being Vulnerable. Part of recovery means learning to share ourselves with other people. We learn to admit our mistakes and expose our imperfections. Not so others can fix us, rescue us, or feel sorry for us, but so we can love and accept ourselves. This sharing is a catalyst in healing and changing. Many of us are fearful of sharing our imperfections because that makes us vulnerable. Some of us have tried being vulnerable in the past and people tried to control, manipulate, or exploit us and they, or they made us feel ashamed. That was very true of me. I was guarded and uh, careful and I spoke like I was part of the State Department. Um, I would give nothing away, and you would not know how I felt. Um, and uh, in the end, that's uh, corrosive. It led to resentments, because I didn't think people understood me, and I, even though that's exactly what I wanted. Um, so my uh, intentions <laughs> did not align, and uh, I was un an unhappy person. 
in the end AAs in the end the thing for AAs I I take responsibility and I the gift of AAs I give me back to myself um, and I grow back to when I was a kid that's really been the goal for me in AAs to go back to when I was 10 years old and that feeling of innocence and happiness and that the world is okay and I feel that every time in, in a meeting um, I've had two stints of sobriety one the first was 0 to 14 years old then I was drunk from 14 to 47 and then I've been sober from 47 to 56 um, so I wanted uh, <laughs> I don't know I started drinking when I was 14 uh, I remember where it was and it was Coors Light and uh, the first drink was super helpful that's for as far as like the idea of being restless irritable and discontented I remember how how much that first drink felt like a miracle and soothed those feelings that I had when I was 14 I was restless I was irritable and I was discontent and it was so amazing and powerful I became obviously reliant on it and admired it. I admired beer, and uh, that's an interesting thing to admire. Um, the uh, definitely can relate to the saying, I'm not here because the last drink was so bad, I'm here because the first drink was so good. Um, I definitely wanted to drink as much as possible. Uh, what it's like now, I guess I'll say another quote that I like by Hope Yarin. She's a scientist and a writer. She wrote a great book called Lab Girl. And another story uh, called The Story of Moore. Um, she wrote single line, Ultimately, we're endowed with only four resources. The earth, the ocean, the sky, and each other. Um, for me, what it's like now is that uh, I like the Bill Wilson thing. It's to be of service and to be profoundly happy. Um, I think service comes naturally to me now. It didn't before. It felt like kind of a mixture between a chore and uh, something I had to do because of peer pressure. And I didn't understand it completely but I kind of did. Now it just feels like part of my life. As far as service, I was asked a question last year. What is, can you be humbly, humble enough today, today to do the least amount? What's the least amount of service you can humbly do today? And uh, that made me kind of think and was an interesting question. And I think it's really being sober is being of service, uh, whether you have one day of so or one hour of sobriety, that's service it can be. And I don't need to uh, to think about it any more than that. Um, I'm, I'm sober walking around town. I'm sober thinking and uh, and that's being of service. Um, the other half of it is being profoundly happy. Um, I'm def 
definitely that today. Um, I became very happy over the last few years and for the first time in my life I was afraid to die <laughs> and which was a, a new one. I'd never been afraid to die. I didn't seem to really care and uh, to be serious I it kind of scared me and uh, I worked through that and I didn't want to succumb or live my life with the idea of that kind of saying, waiting for the other shoe to drop. I wanted to enjoy things as completely as I could and uh, not be worried about what's up next or what's around the corner. That's kind of a challenge and uh, I'm a little bit better at it. And certainly part of that thinking is to keep me safe. Um, um, basically my drinking towards the end I was dying I was broke and uh, I saw myself lose my mind as I described I was a volume drinker towards the end other than drinking every day I guess the best example of that is I worked in Nairobi as a kid when I was 19 as a reporter and I remember I had like a uh, a skin thing going on on my arm and so I went to the dermatologist and uh, and they they gave me some cream for it no no sorry they gave me two, a bottle of pills for this like fungus or something and the only thing with the bottle with those pills was that you couldn't drink alcohol with it and it was a two weeks of prescription and I carried that bottle of pills for 20 years and I never took them. <laughs> I'd never just thought, I never decided to take two weeks off drinking in order to help my arm clear up. Um, so that's the kind of alcoholic I was and eventually I don't know what happened to the fungus. It, it got sick of me I guess and left my arm. Um, I guess uh, I no longer die a thousand times a day. That demoralization of active alcoholism. I never have to die anymore a thousand times a conversation or a thousand times a night when I'm not drink dreaming even. I'm passed out. Um, I would say I now live a thousand times a day and uh, I just now live. I never want to drink again, then I never uh, want to leave AA. Um, overall, I'm uh, glad to be in the presence of my brain. Uh, I probably live in step 11 a lot, uh, just trying to be available for service. As far as some of the timeline of recovery, I, uh, I said my first prayer 
uh, in rehab, <clears throat> which was uh, God help me, but not yet. And uh, I wanted to live my life. I wanted to drink all I could. I wanted to live a horrible life and die a miserable death. I was definitely, like I said, a volume drinker. At the end, I drank 30 beers a day and maybe a gallon of vodka a day. Um, but it wasn't that I drank too much. It was that I could never drink enough. Um, I'd never, I seemed by then to have an inability to live in the world. So I lived in bars. I was a bar stool drinker. A good example of that was... Uh, how I did my laundry, I would, uh, there's a laundromat next to the bar I went to in Santa Monica, California, during like the heaviest probably of my drinking. I would drop my, I would put my clothes in the wash on Thursday evening and uh, I would transfer them, I would then go drink and uh, I would not get back to the laundromat till sometime I would go I would work. I never really stopped working. I would go to work. I'd go back to the bar, drink Friday night. Then Saturday I would go to the bar and and before I went to the bar I would stop at the laundromat and move my clothes into the dryer. And then I would drink all day Saturday and uh and then Sunday I would manage to stumble it's only about half a block to the laundromat to get my clothes which were now dry and usually not in the dryer anymore um so that's kind of how i lived i lived to drink and everything else didn't matter um it's kind of shocking to think about that um but uh it just seems like a different life and i don't really know what to say about that uh except that i feel like I've had two lives and um, I don't want to mess this this one up um, but there's a George Eliot quote you're never it's never too late to be who you might have been and uh, that's what I feel like has happened to me in sobriety I've had I never really could remember the serenity prayer and for all of us who say it every meeting we pray for courage and we pray for wisdom also besides serenity that at what point can we acknowledge that we have courage and that we have wisdom um, I guess uh, I had my last drink at Dirty Bills in Austin I went to a rehab. I spent 30 days there. Um, and, uh, and after I stopped drinking, I had night sweats for six months. And uh, there's some kind of thing in one's brain that has to switch off for those to stop. I had nightmares for two years. And, uh, and that was interesting. It didn't particularly scared me, scare me. It seemed more like penance, um, kind of like the punishment I had wanted from AA, but AA wouldn't give to me. Um, and uh, I also had the interesting th 
thing of trying to do the steps, which I kind of did in rehab. I did the first couple in rehab, but I didn't do step two. I decided to table that. As far as step two, that's the only step I've never finished. And uh, I've started it, and I hope I never finish it. I want to keep thinking about that one. Keep exploring, keep being curious. My higher power for a while this year was a glass of water. And uh, when I first came into AA, I felt kind of peer pressure to get a higher power. So it was a red tail hawk. And I don't know what it is right now. I know I don't have a lower, many lower powers anymore. That would be the main point of uh, that step to me. Um, I exploring that step helped even in rehab for on weekends they'd take people to church and uh, I went only to get out of the rehab and um, so we'd go to church on the weekends and uh, in the parking lot when I got there the first time there was a dog in the back of a pickup and I didn't go into the church I just hung out with the dog and that was really helpful and then I started hearing, hearing music and stuff inside this church and I knew I didn't want to go in there but I went into the uh, into like their cafeteria and uh, I opened up I sat down kind of tired the way everybody is when they're in early sobriety and I opened up their newsletter and the first thing I read was the church wishes Gary and his wife and kids a happy trip and life in Phoenix. And <laughs> and that made me laugh, and it kind of helped break my resentment against religion that, you know, these it can't be that bad, and uh, that there was some goodwill going on. So uh, I never went into that church, but I would go every weekend and hang out with the dog in the pickup. Um, I guess um, I didn't go to AA until I was 85 days sober. I had been got back to Austin, Texas, and kind of I remember going to Barton Creek Mall and uh, wondering what was going on. I hadn't been alive during the light hours for years, and I went to the grocery store, and that was odd. And uh, but I started to eat better and to feel a little bit better and sleep better. But in the end, the world was kind of flat. I spent all day not drinking. Nothing meant anything. And I felt kind of sorry for myself. Um, and I thought I was kind of, that's when I was trudging, I guess. But uh, I did end up going to my first meeting. I wanted to it, I wanted to say that I'd gone to a meeting so I could tell people it was the wrong place for me. And uh, I wanted it to be exactly about what my preconceptions were. Um, and uh, so I went to a Wednesday night meeting at Bolden. It was a beginner's meeting. And I, I've probably been to a meeting every day since that, that night. Um, yeah, I found my home. 
Um, I'm kind of uh, an important part. I think if anybody, I was thinking if anybody had told me I was doing something wrong in AA, for the first few years, I probably would be dead today. I, nobody has ever told me I've done anything wrong. I get to discover things on my own. I get to learn from other people's shares. And uh, and I have gotten tougher. I think if somebody did that now, I would probably stand up for myself. But back then, I, I would have crumpled. Um, I don't know if I would have drank. I would have just left AA. Um, I've done some fun stuff in AA. The most thing I'm most proud of was, well, first of all, I'm proud to be sober. I think like uh, step nine is it? That's the end of isolation. And it, for me, it's kind of like coming out of the closet as a sober person. Everybody I know knows I'm sober. And uh, I'm, it's okay to be proud of that. Also learning AA, it's okay to be good at things. Um, there's a man named Ed. He used to go to the 530. He talked about how the steps helped him to be do things perfectly. I still don't understand what that means, but he is a locksmith. And, it, and it, I think what he meant was that it helped him not have to leave something kind of undone. It's okay to value things well well done and uh, that was an important thing for me in AA I thought that um, that wasn't something to do particularly um, I was thinking that another thing I like to do and I'll, I think I forgot to tell this story last time when I was uh, in ninth grade in Dallas I we used to have assembly in, in ninth grade you're only that's the most tired in the morning as a 14 year old that's the most tired you're ever going to be in your life and so i remember going to these 8 30 assemblies and one morning uh we had a speaker a woman with like a shock of white hair and so she came up to the lectern in this big hall and i slumped down and immediately went to sleep and uh next thing i know she's pointing at me and yelling at me to wake up and uh that was barbara bush and uh and <laughs> that's kind of how i felt most of my life i thought adults were kind of ridiculous and i don't want to hear it you know but i did wake up then so I guess what I'm trying to say with that story is that I've always been in the back row. In AA meetings, I sometimes take a nap. I sometimes read, and uh, nobody's ever told me I'm doing it wrong. So I felt comfortable there. I learn at my own pace. I speak at my own pace, and uh, I do things kind of slowly. Um, it has been interesting. I have learned when somebody wants a quick answer, I don't have to give it. A quick, I don't have to give one, um, which is nice. Um, I've also re resolved my primary relationship. That was with my dad. Um, I'm really happy about that. I made amends to him, told him I was sick. Then what can I do to make it up for him and that? And, but I, 
I did that in the normal amends process, but I had to revisit it because I still kind of resented him. And I told later, a few years later, um, I told him uh, of a different kind of amends. I told him that I had given up on him and that I didn't like him. And the interesting thing was that he said, well, I feel the same thing about you. <laughs> and, uh, and that was great. And I learned that a relationship uh, the ice broke with that because our relationship was then based on honesty um, and I didn't know how that would ever I had to learn how that could work and so a few years after that even my dad called and said um, he had stopped drinking and he was doing that because he'd seen how happy I was and he drank you know all his life and it was shocking to me because I'd never wanted to be like him. And yet he was 86 years old and he wanted to be like his son. Um, so those are the kind of amazing things that happen in sobriety. I took care of him and my mom as they got older. And uh, one thing I've been working on lately is not to try to change anybody's mind. Um, if somebody likes, I'm sorry, if somebody doesn't like me, I don't try to change their mind. And I also don't try to change their mind if they do like me. Um, but, um, Bill had mentioned a story. I had heard a story of a, per, of a man who goes to Bolden and he talked about, he had gone in the backyard, um, and two men were discussing where in America, Africa was. And, uh, he decided to not change their minds or talk to them. He left the backyard. And that seemed like a really wise thing to do that I would have never thought of. Um, and so that made me think to stop changing people's minds. And it helped in a practical sense because my mom had dementia and I was taking care of her. And, and when that stuff starts happening, they say some pretty wild stuff and uh, but I, I, I learned how to not argue with her and change her mind she was on a different plane she every night I would say goodnight and uh, she said she would start at, she, one night she goes Steve how's the musical going and I said I'm not writing a musical and then she got very upset and I got upset like frustrated and uh and then we went to bed and the next day same thing steve how is the musical and i said the musical is going great and uh she was so happy <laughs> and uh and who knows maybe maybe i am uh writing a musical uh Anyway, I'll keep going. Um, the other thing, a few years ago, I decided uh, to work on being happier, like I had mentioned. My goal now is to not wait to go to heaven. I want to live in heaven now. I'm not really interested in waiting. I did not know how to do that, though. And it was suggested to me to go back to my elementary school and walk around or I could do that with anything I could go back to my old house 
I could look at some old photos and things like that. So anyway, I drove to Dallas, um, and then I pulled up to my elementary school about four, and it was kind of empty, and uh, walked up to this, I remember walking inside and seeing all the great notes that they leave on the wall that teachers say, like, good job, or way to go, and all those kind of encouraging things we used to hear when we were kids. And uh, so I walked up to my fourth grade classroom and sat down. And I knew I had refound who I wanted to be. And that was a few years into sobriety. And that was an innocent, uh, an, uh, a purposely innocent person. Um, uh, not in any kind of naive way, but uh, sort of my stance and attitude um, and to be um, loving and accepting and uh, and in the end mirroring what AA <coughs> was to me. Um, that's where I started learning that vocabulary again. That's where I started learning how to speak to people on a spiritual basis which is what we do here. Um, I decided to stop growing up. I decided to grow back and to grow down and grow in all different directions, but I don't ever want to grow up anymore. Um, AA, I, get, I did grow up in private in AA in some ways, um, but I think I'm done with that. <laughs> and that's my right to do that. I swim every day. One of the things that helped me a lot was learning, getting sober habits. And uh, so I started swimming. My first experience with that was defiance. I started walking laps at Deep Eddy pool one day and a lady next to me who had kind of a sleek look and goggles on stopped me. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm working out. And she said, no, you're not. And uh, I, uh, I kind of didn't like that. Um, and and I, I, I walked a couple laps more. And I said, well, I'm afraid. And I stopped. We talked some more. I said, I'm afraid of, I don't really know how to breathe with the water. And I'm kind of afraid of panicking. She said, get some swim, swimmer snorkel and goggles. And... Uh, and I said, okay. And I said, I'm still a bit afraid. She said, just stand up if, if something happens. And so uh, I walked a couple more laps. And then um, I was still, I was kind of resentful with her advice. And I stopped her and I go, well, what are you doing? And she said, I'm, I'm working out because I'm going into chemotherapy. And uh, I was just like uh, speechless, and uh, and I never saw her again. Um, but I uh, I started swimming every day, and that's really been helpful in my life. I swim a mile a day. Um, I'm trying to remember every story that Jim wants me to tell <laughs> that I always forget to tell. I do have funny stories. I guess I can quickly still end with two stories of parties. The first party was I was drinking at that bar in Santa Monica. I got a call 
saying, Steve, do you want to go to Hugh Hefner's pajama party tonight? And I said, yes. <laughs> it was like any kind of adolescent boy's dream, I suppose. So I went, I was already drunk, but I went over to Banana Republic and had to buy some pajamas at four in the afternoon. And then I, we both went to the party and it was his 70th birthday, I think it was in 2006 or something. I went and I kind of always knew how to behave symbolically at events, even when I was drunk. But so I went over and wished him a happy birthday and shook his hand. And then I went straight to the bar and I went up to the bar. It was pretty crowded and I got punched right in the chest. And uh, I looked down, it was Bill and he yelled at me, quit staring at my girlfriend. And, uh, and what I, he didn't know is I had no interest in his girlfriend. I was trying to get a drink. And so I also knew that to not engage with him. So I left the Playboy Mansion, I walked out, and I was walking around Beverly Hills in my pajamas trying to find a cab. And there aren't many cabs in Beverly Hills, it's really quiet. And so I somehow made it to Sunset Boulevard and got a cab. I went home, put my back on my regular clothes and went back to my bar. And I was much happier there. The other party was uh, when I was sober. I uh, was at Lincoln Center and uh, it was October 1st, a beautiful night and day. And I was standing on the stage because I had just won an Emmy and uh, for a movie called Tower. And uh, to imagine that kind of journey and being there was just strange. And uh, so it was very exciting. I was definitely spiraling up in excitement. And there was an after party, and uh, this was not the after party of my dreams. It was a PBS after party. And uh, it was just on another floor of Lincoln Center. And I was sober for a number of years by then. And I remember standing in the middle of the party everybody's kind of huddling around their own tables with the teams from their movies and i i wanted to go to an aa meeting um immediately and so i looked it up um i think smartphones are really helpful for sobriety and it was then and it was a there the next meeting was at 2 a.m the midnight meeting down in, in soho or on houston i think and uh, I guess on Monday nights it's at 2 a.m. for some reason. But um, so I was set. And uh, I was sober enough, though, that I decided to not go to that meeting. I decided to try to enjoy myself and uh, for once not go to a meeting and uh, try, to, try to really embrace the time there and be around people that weren't in AA and that we're happy and, and to stay and not get itchy feet and leave that kind of situation. The next morning, I went to a 7 a.m. meeting and I shared with six strangers what had just happened the night before. And it felt safe to do that there. It felt safe to say, 
something great had happened and not feel like I was bragging or something that I wanted to, that I was spinning up and I wanted to get back to feeling sober. It took two weeks for me to come down from that and I was happy when that happened. Um, for me, uh, I guess we're almost done. I'll see if I can go out with something that I like. I would say uh, I'm not a big fan of that saying the journey is the destination. Is that what it is? I think in AA the destination is the journey. We're already here. We've already arrived that first day we stopped drinking and so then that's where the journey begins. Thanks everybody.